I'm thankful to be back down here with y'all. It's been a while since I've been down here. By the Lord's mercy, I hadn't had any lack of work to do, whether traveling to other congregations or working around our own local churches. We was talking a little bit this morning, and you know, the subject come up of the sovereign God, and that's something I'd like to speak on this morning. We believe in a sovereign God. Now, what what does that really mean? Sovereign, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is is defined as a ruler. To put it plainly, one who acts with unlimited power, so to speak. And when we say we believe in the sovereign God, we really have to stand back and understand how far that scope is. Dictionary limits the scope. And with the sovereign ruler, the scope is limited only to their kingdom. But with God, the scope of his power is not limited. He created all things. He rules all things. It says he is before all things. By him, all things consist. Now, in the ninth chapter of Romans, Paul here is writing to that church. He says it. he expresses his great heaviness and continual sorrow for his brethren that is, his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Israelites. Now, they still do, and at that time they had vehemently rejected Christ. They had rejected the notion that their Messiah had came and that they had crucified him and that he was raised by the power of God from the grave. Yet Paul reminds the Roman audience that the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises were given to them. But he reminds them that even though they had not believed, that did not invalidate God's promises. It did not make his word none effect. He says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect in the sixth verse. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now we believe in the sovereign God. Here's the promises. Not all Israel, that is, according to the flesh, which are of Israel. Those who came out according to the flesh were not all the children of the promise. Now, when we speak of God's sovereignty, we, like I said, understand that His rule is unlimited. There is nothing outside of His power. There is nothing outside of His determinate counsel nor His will. And Paul's writing specifically here about those Israelites who were not, who had not, uh, who had not been given faith in Jesus Christ. I'm thinking about how to word that correctly. He says in the 8th verse, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. This is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said to her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. I'm going to stop here and just let's stand, take a step back and, and really look at what Paul has written. The children being not yet born... Now, Rebecca had gone to the Lord in prayer because there was, there was a lot of turmoil in her womb. And she could tell 
that the two twins were, they were more or less fighting with each other. And she had gone to the Lord in prayer and asked him, what is this? What does this mean? I'm paraphrasing. But, and, and the word came back to her that there was two nations, two nations of people, and, the, and one shall serve the other. The elder shall serve the younger. Now we know that Esau came out first, and Jacob came out grabbing him by the heel, and that's why he was named Jacob. The word, the name Jacob means supplanter. And you want to talk about a promise, being the child of promise, look at, look at what Jacob did up to the time he left his family and went and lived with his relatives up in Haran. He convinced Esau to sell his birthright for a, for a bowl of soup, more or less. Esau came in from the field, was tired and hot, and Jacob, Jacob made him sell his birthright for that bowl of soup. Now, that, that's, that doesn't put the sole blame on Jacob because we find in Hebrews that Esau was as much to blame because he profaned his birthright for a bowl of soup. Counted it as a common thing. And then there's the instance where Jacob deceives Isaac. And he comes in and in order to receive the blessing, his mother makes a meal for Isaac, puts a, puts a skin on Jacob to where he feels hairy like his brother, goes in, a, a hairy man, and goes in and deceives him. Well, you see here that Jacob was loved by God and Esau was hated, and it wasn't according to their works. Now, Paul is writing this to point out that, as he said here in the sixth verse, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And it is not because of our lineage, or where we come from, or what we do, that makes us, that makes God choose us. Notice he says, the children being not yet born neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. God is the one that calls. He calls every last child of his unto himself through Jesus Christ. He calls them to faith. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to conversion. He calls them even unto baptism. All the way through, through all their lives, through that, even the acts of sanctification, are done through Christ Jesus by God Almighty, by the working of His Spirit. Now, God is sovereign. And some may say, just as, just as they ask, just as Paul poses the question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Someone might say, well, God chose Jacob over Esau before they were ever born. What gives God the right to do that? Well, David, in the Psalms, Psalms 24.1, he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. If we turn to the 50th Psalm, I'll, I'll, quote, I'll read to you the 89th Psalm in verse 11. He says, The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. And then in the 89th Psalm, or I'm sorry, the 50th Psalm, I'm going to read this from the 1st to the 13th verses. The mighty God, even the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Salah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. 
I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have, to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine in the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Now, the, the real point I wanted to read here was the twelfth verse. I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. One of the very foundational facts that we have to understand is the reason why God is sovereign is because He is creator of all things. That's not just us. That's not just the inanimate objects out there. It's all things within the universe, from the very smallest particle to the largest celestial object. He is the creator and controller, in a sense. His providential will is worked out amongst all things. This comes from the Proverbs when he, when the in the uh, Proverbs 16:4 it says the Lord hath made all things for himself yea even the wicked for the day of evil. Now I I'm going over these verses to point out the reason God is sovereign is because God is the sole creator of the earth. He is the sole founder of the fullness in the world. He has made all things for himself, and this includes the wicked for the day of evil. Now, Paul says, is there unrighteousness with God? Yea, but, O man, who art thou to reply against God? Shall the thing formed reply against him that formed it? Why hast thou made me thus? God made Adam and Eve in the garden as good. They were not made evil. They were made good. They themselves sinned. They fell. And we inherited their fallen state. Every person since Adam and Eve, with the exception of two, has been brought to death. And the two are Enoch and Elijah. The point here is that God is sovereign because of the very fact that He is creator of all the earth, of the entire universe, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And much more than that, but the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, He turneth it whithersoever He will. He has made all things for Himself. His will is worked out amongst all the inhabitants of the earth. And here in the in Proverbs 21, in the first verse, it says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. We was talking about, you know, Nellie and I was talking about what's going on in Iraq right now. That's a terrible, absolutely terrible. And our president has responded by committing airstrikes against the terrorists. Well, that in of itself is because God wills it to be so. It was the president's decision. It was his decision. And yet his heart was in the hands of the Lord. And he turned it such that those airstrikes would be conducted against ISIS. Now that's hard for folks to swallow. They might say, well, you make God the author of sin. I don't. God does not, he is not, uh, I'm getting a little deep here. God is not the cause of sin. He has made all things for himself, even the wicked. But it does not ascribe the wickedness unto God. When those Jews were gathered together to hear Peter speak at Pentecost after the Spirit had fell upon those men in the house and they were given cloven tongues of fire to speak the different languages that were present that day, Peter said that Christ had been delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and the Jews by wicked hands had crucified and slain Him. 
They alone were accountable for shedding innocent blood. It was done by God's determinate counsel, but it was still account, accounted to the Jews who had shed innocent blood. It was done. It was proven before them more times than one. Pilate himself declared unto them, I find no guilt in this man. And they desired, they desired Barabbas to be loosed unto them instead of Jesus Christ. God works in all the kingdoms of men. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's Romans 9.15. If we turn back to Exodus and see what happened there, we see the divine will of God being worked out. That He was... He even hardened Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus 7.13, it says, And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. That was when Moses was appearing unto the Pharaoh. He had just appeared to him, and he cast down his staff, or Aaron cast down his staff, and the rod became a serpent. And the magicians and the sorcerers, it says the wise men and the sorcerers, stood about him and did in like manner. They cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he not hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. The Lord hardened his heart. The Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. He hardens the heart, and as the divine sovereign, he may do it according to his will. We can't turn each other to a certain will. We might, we might be good at persuading folks to do something, but here the Lord actively hardens Pharaoh's heart such that Pharaoh would continually refuse to let Israel go. And someone might say, well, that's not right. Well, he's here you have a problem with the creation responding and telling the Creator what he ought to do. Well, that's just as plain as it can be. And Paul said, shall the thing form reply to him that formed it wise thou made me thus. You see, he hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh, according to his nature, continued to refuse to let the Israelites go. And these plagues that were given to, that were put upon Egypt were grievous, hard plagues. And in the ninth chapter in the thirteenth verse, prior to the plague of hail, the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thy heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to shew in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Now we... A lot of people have speculated who this Pharaoh was. I'm not, I don't really like to get into speculation. But to this day, we don't speculate who God is. Unto this day, this act, thousands of years ago, is still declared throughout the earth that God inflicted plagues upon Egypt, that God delivered Israel from Egypt. And here we have why Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Why he works, why he has created all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of evil. He says, in this in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up. He's speaking to Pharaoh. Why has he raised Pharaoh up to be ruler over all Egypt? To declare himself a god on earth. To impose an absolute will over the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. 
to be so hardened against Moses and Aaron that he would refuse to let Israel go in throughout all the plagues that are inflicted. And up in this point, they had the plagues of lice, flies, cattle, and boils, plague of frogs, and the river, the Nile River being turned into blood. And up until this point, he is still hardened. It says the Lord hardened his heart, and Pharaoh continues to refuse them according to his own nature. And it says here that he has been raised up, that God would demonstrate his power, and that the name of God would be declared throughout all the earth. It is done for the glory of God. It is done for his own glory, not for the glory of another, not for, not for any, any purpose of any creature. But it is done for the glory of God, the calling of His saints, the gathering together of His saints. Choosing one group of people over another is for His own glory. It's a mystery to us. And, and, and it, it confounds some people because they, they can't find all the answers. Well, you're not going to find all the answers on this side of eternity. Because we see through a glass darkly. We, have, we know in part, we see in part. And we only understand that which the Holy Spirit reveals unto us. I, I think one of the first times I came here, I spoke on out of Corinthians, where Paul writes, you know, knoweth no man the things of man except the Spirit of man be in him. Therefore knoweth no man the things of God except the Spirit of God. We do not understand the things of God except the Spirit of God reveal it to us. And he does so out of his own will and according to his glory and grace in part. And we see in part, and we know in part. And this is a wondrous mystery, that he would raise up a man of power to bring him down. In fact, this pharaoh met a horrible end, watery grave, right there in the Red Sea. We, to this day, no one knows his name. There's speculation that he might be this man, or he might be this man, but there's no solid proof. And it really bothers people that there's no solid proof of who he was. But here, here's why. Because the Word of God, the name of God, is so much higher and so more greater than all the rulers of the earth, what does it matter what His name was? That God did not raise Him up to declare His name, to declare the name of Pharaoh, to say, now look at this guy, to look at this Pharaoh and see what happened to him. No, God raised Him up that the power of God would be declared, that the name of God would be declared. He says, as yet exaltest thou thyself against my people. Thou wilt not let them go. And then he declares the next plague upon them. And it's such a grievous plague that it has not been seen in Egypt since the foundation thereof even until now. They, they, they had never seen anything like this. Now, this isn't just limited to, to Egypt. If we turn to Daniel, we'll find another king who is really dealt with more mercifully than Pharaoh was. But we find another king who's made low. And this is Nebuchadnezzar in the fourth chapter of Daniel. He has a dream. He tells his dream to Daniel. Daniel's troubled because Daniel already knows what the dream is. And he's a little troubled by it because, well, I mean, he, you're standing before the king and you know the dream means the king's going to be cast out of his throne for seven years and, and be out of his right mind for seven years. I'd be scared too. And he gives him the interpretation starting in the 24th verse. He says, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. So it's not only a dream, because you know the proverb says, Out of the multitude of business comes dreams. And we have dreams based on our desires and our fears. And yet there are special dreams, special visions, that are separate from all of that, that are given by God Almighty. 
And Daniel de- declares unto him, it's not only an interpretation, it is the decree of the Most High. So he, he is telling him, you're a king, but there's a king higher than you who has made a decree, and it's going to happen. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. They shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. Seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, and thou shalt have known... After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Well now, about, you know, you find in the 29th verse, that there's about a year passes after this point. It don't happen immediately. It's not just as soon as he says it, they take the king and throw him out. At the end of twelve months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. So I'm sure when this is initially told to him, he's probably, you know, any normal person would be troubled. May, may go out and try to, okay, well, I'm going to amend my ways. I'm going to go out and do right. And then, and then time passes, and he walks and he says, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? So there's, a, there's three usage of first-person pronouns. And he ascribes all that had been done before him, the fact that the house of Babylon had been built, the kingdom had been established, it was done by him and for him. So what's happened here is he's set himself up above God. He's made himself his own God. Even in the face of this prophecy, human nature comes up, prideful boasts are made, And it says here in the 31st verse, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. In the same hour was the thing fulfilled, upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. It's obvious to me that at the same hour, his sanity departed from him. He was not, obviously, he was not in his right mind. It just says, they shall drive thee from men. It never says who the they are, unless I read right over it. Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind for seven times, and that equates to seven years. That's prophetic speech of years. He was in the fields, eating grass like an ox. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. I blessed the Most High, praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say, What doest thou? Same time my reason returned unto me. Can you imagine? Here is God setting an example of his sovereign will amongst the kings of the earth. You know, let alone the common folks. 
us common folks are one thing, but he takes this king, this mighty king, and this is after Nebuchadnezzar had gone in and, and pillaged and sacked Jerusalem, took all those Jews into captivity, led, led them out, brought them back to Babylon and dispersed them. I mean, this, if you read the historical accounts of what Nebuchadnezzar did, he went down into Egypt. He conquered parts of Egypt. He established the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and up until the time of Persia, it was, a, it was the dominant power in that region. Overthrew with, with the alliance they had made with the Medes, they overthrew the Assyrians. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was brought low by the power of God. Pharaoh was brought low. One man was consumed by water. This man was given mercy that he should glorify God. And right, and it, it, we even have this testimony in the book of Daniel. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. Now why, is, why wasn't Nebuchadnezzar put in a watery grave? Because he had gone and sacked and pillaged and, and his army had done all manner of horrible, despicable things in Jerusalem, but that was according to the will of God. Because as God said to, to, as Paul wrote, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is what it means when we speak of the sovereign God. He has mercy on whomever He wills to have mercy, not because of that individual or anything that individual has done. His will does not depend upon their actions. But His will is because He wills it to be. His will is such that He does it according to His own good pleasure. Not according to ours, but His own good pleasure. He worked out His own good pleasure in delivering Israel from Pharaoh and bringing down the walls of water upon Pharaoh's army that His power might be demonstrated. Unto this day, those, types of, those, those works have not been done. Seas have not been cleaved cleaved into two. Just think about it. There's a lot of folks that want to argue, well, they just went through shallow water. But Exodus is very clear. They had walls of water on either side of it, and they went on dry ground. It wasn't just some low-lying marsh because the water come down. Men don't drown in a low-lying marsh. There was walls of water on either side of those Israelites. And that was the purpose, that God would work His power, show His power unto His people through the destruction of Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar being raised up a king for the chastisement of Israel, for the sacking of Jerusalem, is now brought low after his prideful statement for seven years. Has his mind taken from him. At any one time, if the Lord pleases, he could take our very reason from us, our understanding. And yet, by God's mercy, he's given his reason back. He's made to extol, to honor the King of heaven. Describes that he praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. God speaking to Isaiah in Isaiah 46 and 9 through 10, when Isaiah was prophesying against Israel, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. In reviewing this we see God is sovereign. He alone has divine right to what he does throughout all the armies of heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth because he is a creator. 
He has made all things for Himself, even the wicked for the day of evil, that He might be glorified in His justice and glorified in His mercy on those whom He has mercy. And here we have two examples of one king being lifted up and completely overthrown and another king being lifted up and cast down and then having wondrous mercy worked upon him. I don't, I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar was ever a true child of God, but he was an instrument of God. It is very apparent that he was an instrument of God. He may have praised and honored his name at this point and at another point completely departed off. But it was only because God had brought him low. God had returned His reason unto him. My reason returned unto me. Why did it return? Because God willed it to be so. And Paul writes, Therefore he hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. So we have a few things here this, this morning about God's sovereignty. And Paul wrote these things in Acts to remind that the Romans that because Israel had not come, all Israel had not come to believe did not make God's word that the promise was unto them of none effect. We are dealing with the sovereign God, the creator of all things. And, and many people find this doctrine very hard. 19th verse of Romans 9, after Paul writes, Hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? He says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou to repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory under the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared? Under glory. We gather together, and this is really what I wanted to get at. We gather together today because it is according to His grace and mercy. This is the true meaning of grace right here, brother. That it's not anything that we have done, but it is according to the purpose of election. That He has called His people that were not a people. He is, as, as Paul quotes here from, from the first book of Kings when Elijah is driven out, and he's down in Mount Horeb. He says, I have reserved to myself 7,000 which have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 which have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, I have reserved unto myself. It was commented that this is a small congregation. Well, about every primitive Baptist congregation I go to is a small congregation. But I believe the believers of the truth are small in number. Else we wouldn't have the Lord Jesus Christ saying, wherein two, three, two or more gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Two, two, two come together in His name. He's in the midst of them. That's the love of the Lord. It's not anything that we have done, but it is according to His mercy, His compassion. And that's the sovereignty of God, calling His people unto Himself by Jesus Christ according to His own mercy, according to His own sovereign will. I hope in my weak way I was able to bring that out this morning, that He is sovereign throughout all the host of heaven, throughout all the inhabitants of the earth, and He does all things according to the good pleasure of His will. Thank you, brother.